Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through the book of Acts. Today we are specifically looking at Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 1 to 15. And what we're doing is uh, we're continuing to look at scriptures that are focusing on Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, He and Silas were sent out by the Antioch church for this ministry. They began by going to the church, some churches in Syria and Cilicia that had been started during the first missionary journey to encourage them, strengthen them in their faith. Along the way, Paul brought Timothy on board uh, to serve on the mission team as well. Later, when the team was in Troas and in Philippi, uh, Luke was with them, uh, at least when they were in those two cities. As the team was continuing to move west through the Roman Empire, the Lord gave them some very specific direction to move them into Europe. We see in Acts 16 that the Spirit prohibited them from going into Asia and prohibited them from going north into the region of Bithynia. The Spirit is spoken of as the Spirit of Jesus to remind us that, it's he, that, that, that the Jesus Christ is, is, the, is the reigning one who is the one who poured out the Spirit. So it's actually a reminder of the reign of Jesus Christ, speaking of the Spirit of Jesus, and it's he's the one who is sovereign over the extension of his kingdom, and he's the one who's guiding this mission team. Then the Lord gave Paul a vision of a man from Macedonia. They weren't sure where to go, but they got, the Lord gave him this vision saying, come over and help us. Philippi was the major city of Macedonia that was closest to where they were, so that's where they went. They had success fairly early in the ministry there in Philippi when Lydia and her household put their faith in Christ and were baptized, and she invited the mission team to stay at her house. <coughs> Next, they had an encounter with a slave girl who was possessed by a spirit of divination. In other words, she was demon-possessed. She hounded the mission team for days by announcing loudly, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Well, after many days, Paul finally turned to the girl and cast the demon out of her. And what happened here was the fact that a pagan, demon-possessed girl was speaking these words was meant by Satan to confuse the true gospel with a pseudo-salvation from maybe a pagan little g god. At this point, her masters were furious. They dragged Paul and Silas to the center of town and accused them of proclaiming unlawful customs. The crowd of people rose up against them. The civil authorities... uh, Fund up following the lead of the vengeful masters and just in the violent, hostile crowd. And they had Paul and Silas badly beaten and thrown into prison. While in prison, around midnight, uh, these two godly men began to pray and sing hymns of praise to the Lord. And the Lord answered their prayers in very dramatic ways. First, the Lord brought about an earthquake. This was a very unique earthquake. This was not an earthquake that brought destruction. This was an earthquake that brought deliverance. All the cell doors in the, in the prison house were opened. The chains that were binding the prisons, prisoners fell off. But when this happened, the jailer woke up, and uh, when he saw that the prison doors were all standing open, he assumed that the prisoners had been able to escape. Well, his response was quite drastic, because if the prisoners had escaped that would mean that he had not done his job. And so the honorable and expected thing of him would have been to kill himself. And that's what he was in the process of doing. He drew his sword to do just that. 
Well, Paul called out loudly from the inner prison where they were and assured the jailer that all the prisoners were still in their cells. I feel certain that one of the things that Paul and Silas prayed about was the the jailer and his salvation. Well, it turned out that this earthquake gave him the perfect opportunity to to, uh, to speak to him about salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And that led them to be able to speak to his family as well. So they all ended up receiving Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. And as a result, in the, at some time in the early hours of the morning, they were all baptized. Well, later on, as the, in the fullness of the day, the morning, the civil magistrates sent word that Paul and Silas should be set free. Paul saw this as an opportunity to speak to them of the unjust ways that Paul and Silas had been treated just the day before. And I would think, uh, as we talked about last week, that the prayers they were praying, the psalms they were probably singing, would have been addressed the concern about this injustice. So it makes sense that they would use this opportunity to rebuke the sinful and unjust actions of the magistrates who had rebuked the injustice. This also would serve to help the young Philippian church because insisting on their innocence would give some protection to the believers in Philippi. The, uh, they would, hopefully the, the magistrates would not feel it was acceptable to treat Christians harshly. Well, after this, Paul and Silas spent some time encouraging the young church in Lydia's home and then left the city. When that brings us to the verses that we're considering this morning. So let me read for you Acts 17, 1 to 15. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apoll- Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There's another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, They came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So in these verses, we read about their ministry in two cities, Thessalonica and Berea. And as you would expect, the gospel is at the center of what's going on in both these cities. We read of many people receiving Christ. We receive many people rejecting him. And one of the main things that we can learn from these verses is really the first point on your outline, and that's this. 
The gospel is the one hope for mankind, so it must continue to be shared. The gospel is the one hope. So as we move into chapter 17, we don't want to forget what just happened in chapter 16. They had just been badly beaten. They had just spent an evening in chains in the inner prison. Feet were in stocks there in Philippi. They were begged to leave the city. I mean, the Lord brought about great gospel blessing in relation to that quite remarkable, but I'm sure they were still in quite a bit of pain from the beating they took. But instead of taking time off, they keep going. By the cities that are listed here, we know that they were traveling on a road known as the Via Ignatia. This was the main route from Rome to the east, part of the empire. Verse 1 says that they came first to Amphipolis. That was the capital of one of the districts in Macedonia. It was 30 miles from Philippi. They next traveled another 27 miles to Apollonia. And the next day they went 35 miles and arrived in Thessalonica. So according to the way Luke wrote this, it appears that this journey took place on three successive days. They don't appear, uh, it doesn't appear that they have preached in the, in the first two cities. That's a possibility, but that's not really mentioned. And that's reason, if they didn't, it's probably because there wasn't a synagogue in those cities. But walking 90 miles or so in three days is pretty intensive, especially for people who were just recovering from a serious beating. Why would they do something like that? Well, the answer really is obvious. They were committed to sharing the gospel as widely as they could to as many cities as they could. They knew from experience there would probably be some who would believe the gospel. That's what happened everywhere else they'd gone. But they also knew there was a good possibility that there were going to be people who would reject the message and oftentimes in a violent way because that had happened other places they had gone too. But they kept going anyway. They were ambassadors for Christ, just like every Christian is. And their example really in that is really quite incredible to us. I was thinking about this when I was listening to a message that was on the church's answer machine this past week. It was a man from Vandalia who uh, had received information in the mail from our church, and he was mad. He was cursing, making it very clear he wanted nothing to do with our church, nothing to do with the Christian faith in general. So I mentally took, I mean, it, time to pray for him in my mind, and, but it's always kind of unnerving when something like that happens. But that's a drop in the bucket compared to what Paul and Silas had to deal with. Well, we see that once they got to Thessalonica, Luke gives us some insight into what happened there. Thessalonica was the most populated city in the region. It was the capital of another of the districts within Macedonia. And Luke points out to us that there was a synagogue in this city. Told in verse 2 that Paul reasoned, for three Sabbaths there in the synagogue. That doesn't mean that he only stayed in Thessalonica for three weeks, but I think it means that Paul's ministry in the synagogue lasted for three weeks, but he ministered longer in other parts of the city. Because when you read, especially Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, it seems very likely that Paul was there longer than three weeks. Now, there's several things we can learn from the ministry, his ministry in the synagogue, as, as the way it's described. First is this. The gospel is clearly set forth in the scriptures. The gospel is clearly set forth in the scriptures. Verse 2 directly tells us that in the discussions Paul had with those who were part of the synagogue, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. 
So Paul and Silas' intention is going to be, as it always has been, to speak to them of Christ. And in order to do that, he had to speak of the Scriptures. I mean, the gospel is the one hope for all mankind. That would include people who are religious, who are faithful attenders of the synagogue. The Scriptures are the one body of teaching that is inspired by God. Therefore, it's the one body of teaching that is fully and absolutely true. The Scriptures are the definition of what is wise. The Scriptures are the definition of what is right versus what is wrong. The Scriptures are the one body of teaching that is rightly described as the Word of God, and it explains the gospel to us. And even though I, all, I know all those things, most of us probably do about, about the Scripture, I honestly have to remind myself on a regular basis of the great value of the Scriptures. It seems like there's so many other things that vie for my attention, so many other things that are really interesting and maybe sometimes feeling more re- relevant, but in reality they aren't. I mean, there's lots of good books and things that are helpful to read and good to read, but we always have to keep in mind that nothing compares with the Word of God. It's in a, it's in a category all by itself. I'm actually reminded of David's description of the Word of the Lord, thinking about the importance of the Word from Psalm 29. I want to read a few verses from Psalm 29 as he dis- speaks of the voice of the Lord here. He says, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calf and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. Glory because of what the voice of the Lord, because of who the Lord is. I mean, that's the word of God. The word of God is a -a one-of-a-kind kind of book. So Paul used the word of God. He used the scriptures to reason with the people of Thessalonica. Well, next we see that the scriptures make it clear that the promised Christ must suffer and he must rise again from the dead. The Jews and the Gentile God-fearers who attended the synagogue, they would have believed the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, that is. As we've seen before, they would have readings from the law, readings from the prophets, readings from the writings. Uh, All those make up the different categories of the Old Testament scriptures. Those were always included in the synagogue worship services. So they would know of the prophecies regarding the Messiah. That's what Paul referred to from the Scriptures. Now, literally, it says here that Paul was opening and placing before them the teachings regarding the Messiah. The Jews did not generally believe that the promised Messiah was going to suffer, but they were wrong. So Paul uses the Scriptures that they believed to prove to them that Messiah, the Christ, did indeed have to suffer. He may have used, for example, Genesis 3.15. This was the first promise concerning the Messiah. It speaks of him being the one who would crush Satan's head, but also says Satan would bruise his heel. In other words, he would suffer. He may have used Psalm 22, which begins with these words that Jesus spoke on the cross. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It speaks of the Messiah being a worm, reproached by men, despised by people. It speaks of all his bones being out of joint. It speaks of him being laid into the dust of death. It speaks of his hands and his feet being pierced. He surely used Isaiah 53 because it describes the Messiah as a suffering servant, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He would be smitten of God. He would be afflicted. He would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He would be like a sheep being led to slaughter and being cut off from the land of the living. According to the scriptures, the Messiah had to suffer. He also had to rise again from the dead. Psalm 16.10 would be a key passage for this, and I feel certain that, that Paul used this. It says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He wouldn't undergo decay because he would be raised from the dead. He died, but he would be raised from the dead, and therefore no decay. We've seen both Peter and Paul use that very passage uh, in the book of Acts when they're speaking of the resurrection of Christ as it's prophesied in the Old Testament. Well, with verses like these, along with the types, the symbols that they would see in the Passover lamb and the atoning sacrifice of the temple, putting all that together, Paul gave scriptural evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And then he made a final application after he had done that. He said, this Jesus, who Paul was also speaking of, is that Christ. He is the one that God had been speaking of when he wrote about, had these things written about in the law and the prophets and the writings. There is no possibility for sinners to be saved from their sin unless the Christ was crucified and raised from the dead. Salvation is not possible unless the Son of God was crucified and resurrected. God is just. Therefore, sin must be paid for. Christ suffered the wrath of God on the cross for the sin that we have committed. And then he was raised from the dead. That resurrection from the dead is victory over sin and death in order to see our salvation completely accomplished. It had to happen. It did happen, and it had to happen. And the scriptures speak very clearly of these glorious gospel truths. Another thing we're reminded of in these verses is this. Jesus Christ is the king. He's the Lord of all. When Paul preached the biblical gospel, he was, it was the power of God for salvation for all who would believe. But we also see that there were many who despised the message and did all they could to stop it. So let me read for you verses 4 to 9, again from uh, chapter 17. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authority, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they received a pledge from Jason and the others, they then released them. 
It says, we've seen before, this has happened in other cities, the leaders of the synagogue, it says, became jealous or envious because through the preaching of Paul and Silas, there were Jews who were persuaded to believe and join with Paul and Silas. There were also God-fearing Greek men and women who were part of the, who were part of the synagogue. They also believed. But the leaders of the synagogue were jealous because so many of the people who had been part of their synagogue had now left and put their faith in the promised Christ. And they were able to instigate a riot and bring accusations against Paul and Silas. In verse 6, it's interesting to look at the charges. It says, these men who have upset the world have come here also. Now, this indicates that maybe they had already heard of Paul before he got to Thessalonica. These people who have upset the world have come here also. Or it could be, and this may be more likely, it could be a reference to the fact that there had been outbreaks of Jewish unrest in the Roman Empire. So the synagogue leaders may be trying to connect Paul and Silas with that Jewish unrest. The phrase is sometimes translated as turning the world upside down. Though they did not mean it this way, the Christian faith is so contrary to the world that it does turn everything on its head. It causes people to turn from their usual way, natural way of doing things to instead purposely begin to honor God with their lives, to turn from loving the world to loving the one true God and following his word instead. That's upsetting things. That's turning things completely around. And then more specifically, they say that these men are trying to get them to act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. They're saying Jesus is the real king. Well, it's not clear exactly what decrees of seizure they may be referring to. It may well be decrees that were directed to the Jews that were causing some upheaval in other parts of the empire. That upheaval could have been in connection with their rejection of the Christ. Uh, some of those things are not exactly clear. But without realizing it, they were making quite a statement about who Jesus Christ really is. He is the king. Not an earthly king in that sense. In fact, he's the one who has authority over all earthly kings, including Caesar. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. A passage that always just gives me such comfort, and um, I know I've talked about this passage a lot, and I'm going to talk about it again. Psalm 110, which as, as you know, you're probably going to know what I'm going to say next, is quoted more often in the New Testament than any other uh, Old Testament passage. And it says this, the Lord says to my Lord, and I need to explain that. The Lord is God the Father, says to my Lord, God the Son. That's, what this, that's the context here. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now we know from the New Testament that when he's saying, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, this is in the context of uh, Jesus Christ accomplishing the work of salvation as the Christ. So as the reigning Christ... He is saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now again, the New Testament quotes that verse often and makes it clear that it's Jesus Christ who is reigning from the right hand of the Father, the resurrected, glorified, reigning Christ. He is actively ruling as king actively ruling even in the midst of his enemies. So truly, he is the king. 
He is the Lord of our lives. Now, as Christians, we, we know his lordship takes precedence over all other authorities. It's by his lordship that we understand and interpret everything else in life. As Christians, we know that his word is the truth against which all philosophies of men need to be judged. But the accusations that these synagogue leaders were making went far beyond what they understood. Jesus Christ is, in fact, the king. He is the Lord of all. The final thing I want to point out here is this. The gospel proclaims the hope of salvation for all, A-L-L, for all. It's for Jews, Gentiles, men, women, and children. Luke makes it clear in verse 4 that in Thessalonica, there were Jews who were persuaded by what Paul and Silas had to say, and they believed. Then he says there was a large number of God-fearing Greeks who were there, and they also believed. And then he says there were a number of leading women of the city who believed as well. And then when we look at what happened in Berea, same thing. Verse 12, we see that many of the Jews of the synagogue believed. There were a number of prominent Greek women and prominent Greek men who believed as well. We saw back in Philippi that the members of Lydia's household and the jailer's household believed along with them when they received and heard the gospel. So this is a reminder to us that the gospel is for all people. We are all sinners. So we have all fallen short of what God requires of us. And because of our sin, we are all under God's condemnation. We are all subject to eternal destruction away from the presence of God. And we know that there's nothing we can do. There's no philosophy we can embrace that will grant us that that salvation that we so desperately need. But the good news here is that the gospel says salvation is for all. It's the hope for all of us. Well, the next thing we see about the gospel in these verses is this, point number two. The gospel shared and heard is the means of grace, the means of grace that God uses to bring salvation to sinners. As we've already noted, in Thessalonica, Paul clearly shared the gospel using the Old Testament scriptures. He made it clear that Jesus is the one who fulfilled those scriptures and was the Christ. Then Paul and Silas are forced to leave Thessalonica. They go to Berea and did the same thing. The scriptures and the gospel they reveal are considered means of grace. Um, the idea of being means of grace is the idea of it's, it's like a spiritual tool that God uses. It's a spiritual tool that God uses to bring faith to, be, to exist, but also to strengthen faith that we already have. So means of grace, spiritual tools that God uses. And the scriptures, and specifically the gospel, are means of grace. Well, it's clear that in both Thessalonica and Berea, next point, is that man is by nature resistant, resistant to the good news of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul speaks of the great tragedy that sin is in his letter to the Romans, he's quite thorough in describing just the damning depravity that comes from sin. He said in chapter 3, verse 9 of Romans, that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. He's saying the whole world is when he's what he means. I mean, that's important to realize because it was the Greeks who were actively engaged in like idolatrous pagan worship. They generally had little or no access to the scriptures, the means of grace. So, of course, they would be considered under sin. But the Jews, what about them? They definitely had access to the scriptures, 
They're the ones who wrote that God used to write those scriptures and to, uh, to uh, deliver and uh, communicate those promises of God. Jesus was born to a Jewish mother. His ministry was overwhelmingly directed toward the Jewish people. But even though that was true, Paul says they were just as sinful as the Greeks. They showed this by their ultimate resistance and ultimate rejection of Jesus as the Christ. They showed that they were enslaved to sin and were actively engaged in sin just as much as those who didn't have the scriptures, those who were the Greeks. So in Romans 3, Paul says this. He says, there's none righteous. There's not even one. There is none who understand. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So that fully explains why there would be uprisings against the gospel in every city. There is a sinful resistance against the very means of grace that God has provided and given for our, for our benefit. And again, that's true of people who have not been raised in the church as well as people who have been raised in the church to make the application for us. So the introduction of sin into the world has had truly tragic results, and we have seen how that played out in Thessalonica. The synagogue leaders knew that their own jealousy was not going to be enough to get the civil authorities to deal with Paul and Silas. So they went to the marketplace it's amazing that this is how their mind would think. They go to the marketplace and find men who are described as, and different translations use different terms, wicked men, lewd fellows, rabble, those of the meaner and vulgar sort. The Jewish leader is saying, that's who we need. That's what will really help us. Really? So they were able to convince them, maybe even pay them, to form a mob and riot against the missionaries. They go to Jason's home where the missionaries were staying to find them so they could bring them out to the mob for abuse of some sort. They weren't there, so they dragged Jason and other uh, brothers who were there out to the city authorities. The authorities received a pledge from Jason, which seems to have guaranteed that Paul and Silas would leave the city. But the news of Thessalonica... The Jews of Thessalonica were not satisfied with that. They got word that Paul and Silas were sharing the gospel in Berea as well. So they traveled 45 miles to stir up the crowd against them in Berea as well. They ended up forcing Paul to leave there also. This resistance to the gospel is natural in all of us. We see that clearly demonstrated in these verses where the people who were most familiar with the scriptures were also the ones who were most hostile against them. But thank the Lord, by his grace, there's more to the story. So we see from the visit to Berea next that the Lord calls all people to give close attention to the scriptures, to give close attention to the scriptures. Let's read what happened again in Berea, verses 10 to 15. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. 
Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Immediately, the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So those who attended the synagogue in Berea are noted as being quite different from many who were part of the synagogue in Thessalonica. There are several things that we can learn from the Bereans. One is this, being noble-minded, being noble-minded is a readiness of mind to hear, to consider and examine the truth. They're described in verse 11 as being noble-minded, which is further described as receiving the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So this readiness of mind to hear, this in part shows a deep respect that they already had for the scriptures. Paul and Silas were speaking of the same scriptures that they would use in their worship services. So there was a readiness of mind to be better informed about the scriptures. They were willing to consider what they were hearing. They don't necessarily believe at this point what they were hearing, but they were willing to think about it, to consider it. And then furthermore, they examined for themselves what Paul and Silas were saying. Once again, this speaks to their confidence in the scriptures. They weren't willing to just take the missionary's word for it. They wanted to read it for themselves. They wanted to compare what they heard with other parts of the scriptures. Well, this kind of noble-mindedness, I mean, what a great example that is for us. I mean, the scriptures, as we said, are means of grace. They are spiritual tools God has given us. And the Bereans are great examples of how they use those tools ourselves. Well, second, we also see here that time in the scriptures is something that should be done every day. We further read in verse 11 that the Bereans examine the scriptures daily. Now, this is a reminder to us of how vital the word of God is to our life. First, it makes the good news of salvation in Christ so clear. So if we're not certain where we stand with the Lord, then we should be like the Bereans and keep examining the scriptures. But even if you're already a Christian, being reminded of God's grace to us through Christ is something we need every day of our lives to continually be reminded of those truths. In addition, the scriptures remind us of how glorious our God is. They guide us as we pray. They guide us in confessing our sins. They guide us in how we live our lives. They guide us in making wise decisions. They guide us in relationships and constantly point us to trust God's grace. God is a God of grace. He's a God full of love and mercy. And the scriptures remind us of that as well. They're means of grace to encourage us and to help us. We really need time in the scriptures on a, on a regular basis. And third, the Bereans help us to see the word of God bears up well to careful examination. It bears up well to careful examination. The Bereans were examining the scriptures to make sure that what Paul and Silas were saying was truly consistent with the word of God. We don't need to be embarrassed by what the scriptures say about God. We don't need to be embarrassed by what it says about the way of salvation. We don't need to be embarrassed by the standards of right and wrong that it speaks of. 
We don't need to be embarrassed by what it says about how our relationships with other people should be, should be lived out. I mean, for example, it's a common thing for people to struggle with doubt. I mean, Christians deal with doubt also. It's a, that, that's a common thing that we have to deal with. Well, examination of the Word of God can stand up to our doubts. It's a common thing to have questions that we're just not sure about. Well, examination of the Word of God can stand up to our questions. It's not like it's too much for the Bible. We don't have to try to protect the Word of God from close study. The more we examine what it has to say, the more we will really understand the truth. And again, as the means of grace, we'll be helped by it. Finally, we see in these verses that it's through the Word of God that God gives the grace to hear and respond in faith to the gospel. In both Thessalonica and Berea, the Lord used the Word of God and enabled multiple people to not only hear the truth of the gospel, but also to respond in faith. We've already noted that there were Jews, Gentiles, men and women who responded in faith. Several times Luke tells us that many believed. Earlier he pointed out the reference to Jesus Christ as king. Well, in that Psalm 110 passage that I read earlier, it says that as he's ruling from the right hand of the Father, He's making the enemies, his enemies, a footstool for his feet. And he's doing this, Psalm 110 tells us, through his strong scepter. I believe that strong scepter is a reference to the gospel. We have all sinned, as we have said, and have a natural resistance to the Lord and to the gospel, which makes us his enemy. But God in his grace overcomes our resistance through the gospel, through his strong scepter. He calls us to see our sin. He calls us to see the salvation that Jesus Christ has fully accomplished for us. He then persuades us. He enables us to embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. That's how Christ our King rules in the midst of his enemies. And praise God he does that. There is no greater hope. There is no greater blessing than that. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for what we see in Paul and Silas, their, just their persistence. No matter what gets in their way, no matter how difficult or how even physically painful it is, they continue to refer to the scriptures. They continue to speak of Jesus Christ. They continue to, to make sure that, that Jews, Greeks, men, women, whoever, children, were able to hear those verses, hear those things, because we all have great need. Lord, thank you for that reminder of just how important the gospel is. And we also thank you for the reminder we get from the Bereans on how important the scriptures are. Lord, help us. I mean, we all struggle with managing our time. We have so many other responsibilities. I know we do. We, all, we, we know that. There are so many other things that are there. Help us to find some time. It may be a lot for some. It may be less for others. But, Lord, help us to find some time where we can take time to use the scriptures, your means of grace, and knowing that you will help us, you will encourage us as we do that. We just trust you to work in our lives as we take time in your word. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to do that. All the way through, the gospel has been being shared and spoken of. Well, you need to ask yourself the question, is Jesus Christ my Savior? Is he my Lord? Well, give me... 
a prayer like this might be the way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I have fallen short in so many ways. I know that's true. But I thank you that Jesus Christ paid the price on the cross for sinners like me. I thank you that he paid the price for sin. I thank you that he endured the wrath of God for sinners like me. And I want to receive Jesus. I want to receive Jesus Christ as the Savior of my life. Oh, how I need that salvation. I want to receive Jesus Christ as the Lord, the King of my life. How I need him to rule over me because I've made such a mess of so many things. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, you can make a note in your tear-off or those who are watching online can get in touch with us through the website.